Director Casper Collin dives deep into the beautiful music and tragic life of jazz legend Lee Morgan. Plus, reporter Sasha Stone of Awards Daily on the Academy's decision to expel Harvey Weinstein. This week on Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro. Welcome to Pop Culture Confidential. So it's been a couple weeks since brave women came forward and the New York Times and the New Yorker published horrifying stories about movie mogul Harvey Weinstein's alleged sexual abuses. The fallout in Hollywood has been huge. Later on the show, I talked to Awards Daily's Sasha Stone. She's been following Hollywood and tracking the major award shows for the last 20 years now. Among other things, we talk about the Oscar Academy's decision to expel Weinstein following the scandals. But first... You're listening to Blue Notes, Blue Nights here in New York City. Gonna be a stormy one tonight, folks. So take care of yourselves. Now, a fresh outtake from a forthcoming Blue Note album by Lee Morgan. He's really flying high on this one. Well-known trumpet player Lee Morgan was fatally shot early Saturday morning in an East Village jazz club. Police said the 33-year-old Morgan had quarreled earlier with his wife Helen Morgan, who shot the musician once in the chest after he completed a late-night set at Slug's Jazz Club. One of the most critically acclaimed music documentaries of the year is I Called Him Morgan, and it's made by Swedish director Casper Collin. Colin is a jazz lover. His directorial debut was My Name is Albert Ayler from 2006. It's about the life of jazz saxophonist Albert Ayler. And eight years ago, although he was not planning to make another documentary about a jazz legend, he saw a clip on YouTube that blew him away. It was Lee Morgan playing with Art Blakey. Lee Morgan was discovered at age 16 by Dizzy Gillespie, a prodigy on the trumpet. He played with Art Blakey and he released his first record on Blue Note. But his horrible heroin addiction would plague him most of his professional life. A woman named Helen met Morgan when he was in the worst throes of addiction. In many ways, she's credited in helping him get his career back on track. But it was Helen who shot and killed Lee Morgan a stormy night outside of Slug's nightclub in New York City in 1972. Casper Collin has interviewed many of the incredible musicians that played with Morgan. The documentary is beautifully filmed by cinematographer Bradford Young, who would later go on to make a rival. And maybe the most striking part of the documentary are the tapes that Collin came over. Tapes of Helen Morgan being interviewed by a teacher she had late in life. These interviews are from after she served time for the murder. I started by asking director and producer Casper Collin if he could describe Lee Morgan's particular musical genius. Yeah, I mean, in a personal way, I can do that. I mean, he, he is, uh, um, he's really one in a line of... Uh, strong, strong communicators within the, the history of jazz. And he had that ability to really, really communicate with this instrument. And, and uh, I think it's Wayne, who's, Wayne Shorter, who's telling this in the film, that, that he, he really could tell a story uh, in his solos. And, and, and that, that is really special with him. But I mean, other than that, I mean, it's for me personally, uh, why, why I really, you know, did this is this a love for, for the sound of his trumpet, really. Um, so so that, that's really personal uh, for me. 
And what was his sort of trajectory? He started when he was 16. How did this all happen for him? Yeah, I mean, he was this wonder kid. Uh, he, he got his first uh, trumpet. He, he, he's from Philadelphia, Philly, uh, and, and grew up there. And early on had a love for music. And he got his first trumpet when he was 13 years old from his, uh, his sister. Uh, and he early on had a, had a dream of, you know, being one of the best jazz musicians in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and uh, he, he, he really, really practiced and, and, and fought for that. And uh, then suddenly Dizzy Gillespie was touring through Philadelphia and, and heard him play at a little club there. And, and uh, yeah, and he invited him to be part of his group. So uh, that, that's quite remarkable. I think he was actually, when he started with this, he's 18, when he actually joins his group. Uh, and this is in 1956. And this is really as big as it can get at, at this time, you know. And and at the same, same time, really, just a few months later, he, he, he is signed by the major jazz company at this time called the Blue Note Records. And he's 18 years old. Wow, and, he's you know, still so young. <laughs> so he, he's just a teenager, you know. And, and he, he just, uh, you know, records a lot of albums, which would become classics when he's like 18, 19 years old. And and I mean, I mean, think of your. What did you do when you were 18? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> nothing. <laughs> nothing of importance. So, <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm there too. You know, I'm with you. So uh, really, really special. But but it also, I mean. Like someone is saying in the film that he, even if he was just a teenager at this time, he really sounded like an old major, you know, musician when mm-hmm. he was soloing. Uh, so he had that, that energy of the youngster, but still that that feeling of an old wise person in a way, you know. Right, right. Uh, it was a nice, nice mix to him there. Uh, so, so it's really fantastic. And then, I mean, from there, he... He went on to play with Art Lady and the Yes Messengers, which is this uh, really, really very special hard bop group. And uh, he was on, on, you know, a lot of records with them and toured all over the, the world with, with Art Lady and the Yes Messengers. And, and so many great musicians passed through that that group. Uh, you know, Wayne Shorter and Benny Golson and you know all the legends. They were there, you know, and he played with them. How did you discover the story of Lee Morgan? I think it's eight years ago now, I, I, being a music lover, I was listening to, you know, I used to search YouTube and, and you know, find new stuff to listen to. And uh, then suddenly I found this clip with Lee Morgan playing with Outbreak and the Yes Messengers from, from Japan in 1961. And uh, they, they were performing a song called That There by the piano player Bobby Timmons, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of a classic in itself. But it was... Uh, it was Lee's way of, of, of soloing there, soloing there that really moved me very deeply. I never, I mean, I've been listening to jazz for since I was maybe 18, 19 years old, but I, I ne- had never heard anyone play trumpet like that before. And uh, somehow I had kind of missed that quality in Lee, even if I know about him, but, but I hadn't really been listening to him. So I was so fascinated by him and, as you know, I, I kind of listened to this clip on repeat for a while. I usually do that when I find something that I like. <laughs> yeah. And from there, I mean, this this feeling came there that, wow, maybe there is a film there uh, because I was so fascinated by, by this. And uh, so I started this research 
just to see, I mean, is it possible to make a film about Lee? Uh, how much archival material is there? And uh, how many of those people that were around are still alive? And uh, yeah, I noticed quite early that quite a few people seem to still be alive. So I reached out to them just, you know, to do like initial interviews with them mm-hmm. to, to see who was Lee and, and is, is a film possible? Uh, and many of them started to talk about, you know, those uh, last four years in his life. I want to talk about Helen because the way I, I, I did not know this story before I saw your documentary. Um, and it, it's fascinating how you tell her story that this is a woman who had her first baby when she was 13, her second when she was 14 and left for New York. Could you describe her as well and what you found out about her? When you saw those YouTube clips with him playing, there was a lot of comments about how great he was. But then there was those nasty comments about this bitch that shot him mm-hmm. because there was a woman who killed him. And it's kind of, oh, I wonder who she was, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, and then, you know, doing this research, I started to talk with those people. And almost all of them started to talk about those last four years in Lee's life that he had spent with a woman named Helen. And they told me that, that he had a terrible heroin addiction and, and that he, in the mid-60s, was about to, you know, die really. And they were kind of afraid because they, they didn't know what to do themselves uh, to help him. And he, he just lost it. Uh, and no one really wanted to hire him and so on. And uh, then this woman named Helen came on the scene and, and fell in love with him and started to, to help him back, you know, nurse him, <laughs> help him with new clothes and, and give him somewhere to live. And uh, yeah, and this fantastic relationship started. But I only know, you know, that Lee was, Lee was killed. Uh, I mean, that, that was part of the myth about Lee. I mean, or the story about Lee, that he was this youngster, uh, the wonder kid who was signed to Blue Note and played with all the greats when he was a teenager. And, and then he was suddenly shot by a woman at the club. And all the fans of Lee tended to hate this woman because they took their hero away. Uh, so, I mean, finding this tape where she's actually telling her own story was very fascinating. And listening to this, I mean, talking about her background. Yeah, I mean, she's talking in a very special way about, you know, having her first kid at 13, mm-hmm. her second at 14, and then just that she never really wanted to have those kids because she was so young. And, and that from there on, she knew that she really wanted out from that little village she was living in called Charlotte. And, and uh, she left those two kids behind her. She left them to her grandparents and uh, she moved on. I came to Wilmington. And then I got married here, and I only knew him for a week. And this was like the fast life here. I was 17, he was 39. And he got drowned. So his family lived in New York, and I left Wilmington to stay two weeks in New York and I never came back. She got to New York uh, and slowly started to, you know, create her own life. Uh, so, I mean, she's very, very, very strong person in this time. I mean, and she had a chance and she got this apartment, which was on the 53rd Street. And I mean, that's just one block from 
the jazz street, which was like the 52nd street at this time with all the jazz clubs. And she really loved music. And a lot of people came there to, to eat and just hang out and listen to music. She really became sort of like a, a culture, a sort of creative hub for all these jazz people. And, and she had a real talent for that, right? It definitely seems so. Lee Morgan was truly dogged by his heroin addiction. How would people see that it affected his work? Yeah. I mean, heroin is such a terrible thing. I mean, uh, because there is really a point of no return for so many people. I mean... And it was it was part of the unfortunately the, this was part of the lifestyle and it was you know those extremely nice suits, shoes you know mm-hmm. and also they they bought the sports car there was a fantastic kit those uh, great musicians had at this time you know uh, the style that they had and unfortunately this the heroin was there too and not all of them and I think that's very important as Wayne Shorter is saying in the film that he never did it you know mm-hmm. he never mm-hmm. tried it but he drank a lot. As he described, he drank a lot of cognac uh, so he could have this little, as you say, this little bubble, this dream to get in the zone when he was playing. Because they were in this in, in those nightclubs and there was a lot of people there and each and every night you really need to focus on your music. Uh, so that was his his way of, of actually being focused on his music. That was my understanding because th- that was actually what they were doing and they were artists, those, mm-hmm, those guys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... Uh, to stay focused on your music in this kind of environment isn't, <laughs> I mean, uh, think about those clubs at this time. I mean, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, talking about Lee, I mean, the thing is that Art Blakey, who was a generation older than Lee, and almost all of the members in his group were, were like a generation younger than him, uh, so he became kind of a father figure in a way, and he was a serious heroin addicted person, mm-hmm. uh, and everyone knows about this. And and uh, but he was a guy that could handle it. Some of those guys I met that they that also played with <laughs> with art. They say that it seems he only got stronger <laughs> about it. You know? No, oh, really. Yes, yeah, so he, he really you know could could handle it. Uh, but but very few people could, you know. And uh, so unfortunately, Lee tried it and got hooked. And he got hooked already in the early 60s. And then it, you know, went on and off. And uh, it was in the mid-60s. He had this overdose at the hotel room and he fell. I asked him about once he was lying down, I saw that he had the burn on the side of his head. I asked him about that. He told me readily about that. He'd gotten high and um, kind of um, OD'd and fell, and his head hit the radiator, and he was out, and um, he smelled burning flesh, and the radiator had burned, you know, a big hole. And then if you notice in his pictures after 1965, he combed his hair forward. And it was only when his head was in a certain position, you could the hair would fall away and you could see the scar, the burn on his head. That, that's so sad, so it's hard to talk about, actually. Uh, and 
but this is only one thing. I mean, he, he, you know, there are stories in the film about Lee turning up to gigs in New York with his slippers on, you know, mm-hmm. because he sold his shoes to 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 be able to to buy drugs, you know. Right. So it's it's in a way. I mean, it's terrible, but it's also the the the, the story of a addicted person, uh, and that's how serious things were. And uh, still, he was this brilliant, brilliant musician. And uh, it's so sad when, when something like that happens. And uh, I mean, discovering this when doing this research, because I didn't know this from the beginning about the the depth of, of, of this tragedy. Of his addiction, right. <laughs> yeah, and this tragedy that, that were going on before he met Helen, how how low, how, how low he, he went, you know, mm-hmm. and that, that those people around him that loved him because they were his best buddies, you know, and I don't know if you have experience, I mean, a lot of people, if they have experience with, with you know, having an addicted person around them, and that's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a complicated thing in life because those people will not be acting as they did before they were addicted. But it's also this constant thing of needing money, you know, and, and borrowing money and, you know, all the time just needing money to, to the next fix, you know, and, and it, it's hard to see your friend uh, go down like that. But uh, yeah, so this was a very special thing to handle when, when making the film, because, you know, just talking about Harry and I'm getting kind of, oh, it's kind of point of no return story. <laughs> uh, and and, and to, to, to handle this in the film, that was a challenge uh, because I, I really didn't want to do that drug film in a way because this was really would be a love letter to this music that I love so much, you know. Uh, so we had to find a special way of doing this film. It took quite a while. Right. No, I'm, I think you handled that extremely well, and that and then that uh, I'm not going to go into what happens with with mainly with Helen and Lee and and, and more because that, that's really something to see. Um, and and it's the music and the talent that really comes forth. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the making of it itself because your photographer is amazing, um, uh, Bradford Young, who could you tell me a little bit about how you wanted, because there's a bunch of interviews, of course, but then there's some beautiful New York scenes that, that you must have filmed specifically for the movie. Tell me a little bit about how you worked with him. Yeah, I mean, that was a real gift when I met him. Uh, he's such a talent. And that was, you know, I was living in... Um, this was before it was Oscar nominated for Arrival? It definitely is. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, actually, I actually met him before he won his first award. I, I was living in New York, in, in Harlem, with my family in the fall of 2010 and spring of 2011. And this was when we were starting to shoot this project. And I met Brad at an event in the fall of 2010, pretty early there. And uh, it was really our love for music that brought us together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and he had seen my previous film and I had seen some of his like first short films he shot. I really loved it. And then he had seen my Albert Eiler film and he really, really loved it. And, and uh, so, yeah, we, we, you know, we, we, we just said that, okay, we, we want to try and, and, and work together. And, and we did. And uh, so we started to shoot a few of those interviews then because a project like this, all of those people in the film, which is quite remarkable in itself, I must say, because so many of people 
isn't the film isn't the film really that that are those kind of uh, legends, you know? Oh but yeah, they were they were still around, and, and and you really need to, you can't wait really because it's anything can happen, you know? They can die, you know. He wrote music that came from his youth. He searched for the new land. He was actually digging back into his roots and history. And, and what can what could be what could be achieved with freedom? I wish the world was like this. I wish you know. When we did record, there was always the thought that this is going to be forever. What we choose is going to be forever. We started to do it, and then. I had already found this fantastic tape with Helen. I just have Hirsch. to mention with that because I love how when you're going to start, when we, the viewer, gets to start to listen to the tapes, um, there's a shot of an incredibly dusty tape recorder. And you get, <laughs> and it's just beautiful. And you can just see the shot that, that this is not what we use anymore and it's still usable and it's dusty. And then it, it, I really love that little moment. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, that was kind of special. No, uh, definitely, definitely. But, but I mean, uh, a challenge for me in making this film was, I mean, and, and it is always, if, if you do looking back in a documentary, I mean, how are you going to visualize a film like this? Because this is actually about an, a jazz musician in the 50s, 60s, early 70s, and there's never going to be enough saved footage, you know. Uh, you're going to be very happy for what, what is out there, but you're going to have fantastic music, and what was so incredible with this was all the stills I found. But, but, but then when it comes to Helen's part of the story, we only really had her, her voice, you know, from this, <laughs> this cassette. He had had his teeth knocked out. And he had the brace on, he saved the teeth. And that had been years, and he hadn't even got the brace off. But I said, you don't, you're not playing or nothing? I said, you need to start back to work. Because, see, they couldn't depend on him. They said, Lee Morgan is going to pay at so-and-so and so place. He might not be there. I mean, I think we found like 15 photographs of her or something, and, and, and it's because she never wanted to be photographed. <laughs> but Lee, as a contrast, he is probably one of the most photographed jazz musicians from this era. You know, we had over 2,000 or, or near 2,000 still pictures of him, you know. So that was really a contrast. So how am I going to deal with this in the film? And it's a little difficult for me with reenactments. I, I, I'm not so fond of that. No, uh, no. I'm not a big fan because it's so overused in each and every documentary today. You know, you have actors in there, you know, you film new scenes, it's going to look old. And then it was this snowstorm. I know that everything went down, you know, when, when Lee died, when Helen shot Lee. Yeah, on the club. day of his, of his death, yeah, there it, was a huge was storm this, in New York, right? It was this enormous blizzard, you know, and that was, I think, the first... Yeah, it was actually the first visual idea I had for this project. And it was still kind of, you know, on the development stage of this film. And I know that I'm going to shoot a blizzard in New York. And living in New York, you have a chance to just wait for them to come because they come each and every year, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and it's the same shock every year. So the first one 
came two days after Christmas 2010. And the second one was, yeah, it was one month later in the end of January. And it's, it's actually a, a long time later when I looked this up that I found out that those two snowstorms are two of the 10 most severe blizzards in the history yeah. of New York. Wow. They're like number eight and nine or, or something. <laughs> uh, and I remember being out there and the first of them, it was only me and Brad. <laughs> well, I have to say it was worth it because the shots are spectacular. <laughs> so you can tell me that for him. And before I wrap, I just also have to say that the editing, which is also a Swede that we know here, Dino Jönsötter, and, and I'm, I'm sure you had several editors, but, but that's amazing too because this is a very difficult picture to edit. I think that is something very important to say. Yes, it is... Uh... I mean, the editing of a film like this is so much, and that is something I learned from my previous film that took seven years to make, that uh, I'm also the producer, I'm both the producer and director of this film, and as my responsibility as producer for this film was to make sure that we had enough time in the editing. And that is, I mean, I think for me, it is so important to have this time also to be able to work in the music organically in the film, even if you have an interesting story to tell. This is really coming from the music for me, and, and it, the music need to be there. And, and uh, I, I worked a lot with that. And uh, so I think we edited the film for 12 months, wow. even a little bit more. But we spread it out over three years, and that was totally, totally important <laughs> to do that uh, and crucial for, for making the film that it finally became because you edit and then you you know that you're going to go out and, and film some more or find some more material you know and then it's also you know making sense of those 2000 still photos of Lee and you know it, it and then find out actually how you're going to film those scenes on 16 millimeter that we 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 filmed those scenes with Helen. We used those old Bollocks cameras and pushed the, the film two stops to have that graininess. And uh, mm -hmm. it's more like a combination somewhere in between, more like a poetic thing and uh, and snippets of old home movies rather than, than reenactments. Re uh, which I really yeah. appreciate. Right, right. Oh, thank you. But it took a while to develop that style for the film. And uh, so, so it's really a working progress, and, and you need to, to keep it to working progress for, for a long time. And then I must really credit all the, the, the editors, because first I worked with Eva Hillström, mm -hmm. who has who been the person that I edited my first film with, and we started this film, you know, and together. And uh, then I, I, I worked with Hanna Leonqvist, mm -hmm. uh, which is another great Swedish editor. And then on the end... I had Dino coming in to polish the film. Uh, and, I mean, we, we went over it several times, really, yeah. to, to, to make it as good as possible. You, you want it to be as good as possible, definitely. So are you heading to the Oscars? Yeah, I mean, that was, I just want to say that was such a special start for me with this film. We had all those major festivals. It was, I mean, Venice, Telluride, Toronto, New York, and London. And uh, that was last fall. And... Uh, then we had this spectacular reviews when it opened in in US in the spring. This this uh, film uh, theatrically. Uh, so yes, we we are. What I want to say with this is that it's kind of natural to try, and the film is it is submitted. Yes, and we are now doing a little campaign for it. We're definitely doing our best to to get to the shortlist. There, there are fifteen films 
it's going to be selected. And it's very special year, this, because it's a record. It is 159 films that are submitted. Wow. Which is a record. I think it's, it's been like 145 or something before, uh, which was 2013 or 2015 or something. But so, so I mean, it's a d- tough competition, but we, I mean, it, this has been one of the best reviewed films of the year. So, yeah, we just hope that people will remember it right now and we're doing our best. For a generation sort of starting with jazz, if we think about our kids who are, um, we both have kids around early teens or coming up there. Could you say one recording that you would put into their hands and say, start with this one? Wow. I think, I mean, that's maybe a a difference between the two films I made. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first one is about Albert Eiler, and that is more like this extremely experimental jazz musician, Albert Eiler, which is, you could start there. (laughs) Uh, uh, But but Lee is probably a good start. I mean, if, if someone doesn't know or say that they don't know anything about jazz or that they don't like it, and if you, for example, play Art Blakey's classic Moaning album with Lee right. on it from, from 1958. And, and, and you play that song, they're going to say, oh, I know this tune, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, this is good, you know. And then they, okay, you know, so that's probably a good start. And uh, But, but I mean, I, th- I think it's, it's, for Lee, I would really start with his masterpiece, and that's Search for the New Land. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's where I would start, because that's also music that, that is not just jazz. It's going somewhere else uh, in that majestic opening piece, which is Search for the New Land. That's an epic kind of music mm-hmm. uh, that, that is really transcending jazz. And with that, I'm going to say thank you for your time because um, it was so amazing to talk to you. And, and I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that you go all the way with this one and just keep having successes everywhere. Thank you. It's great to talk with you. Thank you so much to director Casper Collin. You can see I called him Morgan on Netflix and on SF Anytime in Sweden. And good luck to you during this award season. And now for a completely different discussion on Hollywood and awards, I wanted to talk to Sasha Stone of Awards Daily. She's been covering Hollywood and tracking award shows for the past 20 years. And of course, she's been following the Harvey Weinstein story very closely. I started by asking Sasha Stone if she was at all surprised about the stories and allegations that have surfaced around mogul Harvey Weinstein. Um, No, it didn't, because I had already known that the story was going to break. I was friends with David Carr, and um, I've known a few people in Hollywood who have been talking to me about it, and I could sense it in the air. I could feel after the Bill Cosby thing, after Donald Trump... Um, after a few things that happened in our own community with, with women and sexual harassment and stuff like that coming out, 
um, and the meant the outrage around it. I could just feel it. It was a simmering pot. Like I just knew that it was coming any minute. I just didn't know who was going to break it. I didn't know how serious it was. I'd heard some vague rumors. Everybody in Hollywood knows that there's a weird thing with Harvey and women, but I think most people sort of assumed it was, it was, it was affairs, you know, that he was having and, and not kind of the pathological repeat pattern of behavior that it turned out to be, which it was very predatory. So predatory, in fact, that it almost seems like he only did the movie stuff just so that he could have that kind of over women, you know? It's been about, 10 days sort of since the the first uh, story broke in in the New York Times um is have have just sort of recap where we are right now what what's happened where is he and where is the Weinstein company I feel like the Weinstein company if I you know if I could predict what will happen they'll have to just dissolve it I don't see how this works um works in their favor in any way you know um, they, no matter what movie they have, it's going to be attached to the Weinstein name. You know, people are going to talk about it. Everybody's resentful because they feel like the board and the people involved knew that at the very least there were payoffs to women to keep them quiet mm-hmm. for decades. And so I think that there's a sense for people that they don't just don't even want them, their business in town at all, mm-hmm. even though you know, the other, the flip side of the story is that they produced some incredible movies and revived the film industry in a way. Um, but the funny thing is, is we're moving into a third phase of film evolution where the Weinsteins maybe had the second evolution of, of the rise of the independent studio, but then, um, you know, the independent studio becoming mainstream in the Oscar race anyway, and making money and being profitable. Um, but, now with streaming with Netflix and Amazon movies and, you know, all these different methods of, of making films and creating new studios, it kind of feels like the Weinstein thing is, is passe, you know, that it's, that it's, that it's a thing of the past because, you know, they, people don't really depend on them so much to find those great independent movies anymore because there are all these other producers and studios that are doing that. Does this change how you see Weinstein's incredible, um, movie, uh, canon that he had, he does have? Um, not really. I mean, uh, Shakespeare in love. I mean, all of those films, they, they were, you know, they were pushed by him and he had, he had really good instincts as far as, you know, what audiences want to see, you know, he really knew that. And, and a lot of people are sharing news today, like Harvey Weinstein, you know, once, you know, took this lady out, this actress out because she wasn't, she wasn't sexy enough. And, you know, at, you know, is there going to be enough nudity? And he, you know, a lot of Hollywood producers do that because they know that that's what the majority of male audience members want to see. So I think in a way he knew what to give people what they wanted, especially Academy members and the product of those films, what they are doesn't change because of his you know, revelations about his behavior. Um, The only thing that really changes is that, you know, you you become surprised that someone could be so generous, um, you know, in art and so uh, prolific and productive and ambitious and driven and also be just completely blind to um, 
you know, being a, a humane and kind and compassionate person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's mm-hmm. an argument to be made that maybe you can't be both. Right, right. If you are compassionate, maybe you're um, you're not as, as uh, ruthless. Right, right, in business, yeah. That's, that's worth a, a night of red wine and philosophy <laughs> on that one. That's true. In terms of the um, academy, uh, he was just ousted from there. I think, I believe he's only like the second one in the academy history to do that. And the other one is someone who was like pirating screeners or something like that. Um, Did this surprise you that the academy actually took this step to um, kick him out? No, that didn't surprise me either. I was asked if I thought that they would kick him out the night before they did. And I said, yeah, I'm sure they will because... The thing that they need to really handle is public publicity. You know, they 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 want to have a good face. They don't want to be thought of as you know all the negative things that they're accused of being. And this story was just way too big. There was no way that they could not kick him out. They didn't. You know, that would mean siding with him. That would mean. I mean, probably people would have dropped out of the academy. There would have been protests. I can't even imagine how bad it would have gotten. But no, for them, they, they're going to cut ties with him. And that means they're they're making a statement, you know, that, that this is the new Hollywood. And we're not going to, you know, we're not going to turn a blind eye on this stuff anymore. It's not cool anymore. You know, that stuff should have gone out back in the 1930s and 40s, you know. But there's such a huge irony in this because even people who don't follow the Oscars as closely as I do and definitely not as you do um, know about the Weinstein's incredible um, um, Oscar campaigns and that they've been like nominated, what, 70, 80 times or something like that. And that it's him, that he's the one who gets out of the Academy. That's sort of quite a big deal. It's a really big deal. It's such a huge thing because... He's synonymous with the Oscars. You know, he is absolutely synonymous. People, whenever they think of the Oscars, they, they, they don't know any other publicity person. They don't know any other thing about them, but they know that. They know that Harvey Weinstein is known for being an Oscar guy. And that helped him to be, you know, to have power over women like he did. That was one of the things that really, really helped him because he could do anything in this town. He had free reign because he was so successful. And I think nobody really wanted to mess with that gravy train Mm -hmm, from mm -hmm. the top to the bottom. I think everybody liked that there was money flowing, that people were winning Oscars and, you know, nobody wanted to mess with it, you know? But what does this mean for the Academy in terms of, of, I mean, he's not the only one who, with these rumors um, uh, and, and, and allegations, I'm not, is Bill Cosby an Academy member? You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, uh, but I know I, Casey Affleck yeah. last year, um, Woody Allen, I suppose, is a candidate. But I mean, what are, what does this mean? What are they going to do with the rest of the <laughs> when this comes up? Um, I don't think that they are going to start kicking people out over bad behavior. I don't think that's what they do, um, because then it would mean that to win an Oscar is to be someone who has impeccable behavior mm-hmm. and that's not what they're supposed to be about. They're supposed to be about rewarding high achievement in film. And so I, I don't think that they're going to run people through the, the behavior test, especially if it's, um, you know, if it, if it is from a long time ago, for instance, Nate Parker last year had a movie called, um, uh, birth of a nation, which came out of 
Sundance with a lot of great reviews and people were thinking it was going to be a strong best picture contender. It was bought by Fox Searchlight for $20 million or something, $17 million. And then his past uh, rape allegations came out and the you know family of the victim wrote op-eds about it. And it, it didn't take long for him, not only his movie to be dead, but his career basically looks to be dead too. I think that's more or less what you're going to see. You're not going to see the Academy take action, but you're going to see the public and the press take action against people. And that's going to affect which movies get nominated. But in Harvey's case, they did. It was just too much. They couldn't. In Harvey's case, yeah, it was such a big story. It was just overwhelming. There was no slowing it down. There was no justifying it. There was no getting out of it. It was too much. Every single day, a new allegation keeps coming out. And I think what shocked people was that they kind of knew that he had propositioned women and slept with women. But I think the systematic abuse and the exact same pattern of behavior every time, bringing them to the hotel room, having assistants there, excusing the assistants, leaving them alone, showing up in a bathrobe, making a pass at them, you know, or chasing them around the room, or in some cases just, you know, imposing himself on them. And just the, and, and all under the guise of, a potential career for them, you know, or, or breaking their career if they said no. Yeah. Mm. Right. Or breaking their career and threatening them if they said no, it really, it seems such a desperate addiction on his part. Like he just really couldn't stop himself and it was, it's horrifying and it goes all the way back to his, the beginning of his career. But is his career over? I mean, well, I have a saying, white men fail upward in America. <laughs> <laughs> Please say it, it isn't so. <laughs> I think so. Look at our president. Yeah, you know, yeah. Donald Trump, all he did was say those women lied and his supporters believed him. They would rather believe him than believe the women. And they didn't care. So the difference between Harvey Weinstein and Donald Trump is that the people on the left care they're horrified. The people on the right don't care. So um, that is, uh, I, I don't know what's going to happen to him, um, but I, I would imagine that eventually he could probably, I, I feel like he'll come out just fine. You know what I mean? Uh, Nate Parker won't because Nate Parker is not a white man. So he won't. He'll never be able to get back in and be admired again. He has no power. Harvey Weinstein has all the power. White men have all the power. So I think that um, not to sound, you know, I, I'm not trying to make a racist statement against white men. I'm just saying that in America, that's the case. But lastly, all these brave women that have come out and are, are telling their stories and continue to tell their stories day after day now, um, do you think that this will lead to any real change? in Hollywood and in, in other places, but particularly since we're talking about that in, in, in the entertainment industry? That's a really good question. Um, I saw a story today where someone was talking about how, uh, you know, the conditions under which a woman would be hired, and, and it always has to be she's sexually appealing to men. And I think if there can be a change, maybe it can start there, where the whole concept of movies isn't about serving women up you know, like meat on a plate, that maybe they can start thinking about women in terms of being actual people. I don't know, just a thought. Mm -hmm, <laughs> but that's mm -hmm. one thing. And and I think that um, Hollywood in general has a disgraceful um, 
history of sexism. And it's not just this. People pay attention when the sex is involved. But the fact is, is they've been shut out of being directors. They've been shut out of leading studios. They've been shut out of being writers, you know, over and over again for decades up to now and, and dismissed. It took Patty Jenkins to make, you know, Wonder Woman to prove to them that right. a woman that, you know, so they can see it with their own eyes. And even then they probably have a million other reasons why that movie succeeded other than the fact that she directed it. So women are basically treated like garbage, you know, do you think that this at least has given a bit of a, you know, cur- that, uh, that people, women won't be as afraid to actually um, say that this is happening to me? Well, one thing I really like about, I mean, it's, it's a blessing and a curse, but one thing I like about living in the modern age is that marginalized people now have a voice and they have a way to rally on, online, on Twitter. Look at what happened with the Oscars So White campaign. One woman tweeted it and it became a huge movement and it changed the way the Academy actually votes. So yeah, it really did. This kind of thing will keep, will keep them in check. Now they've got, they don't have total control anymore. In fact, they don't really have control at all because the uh, social media has given the people a voice. And so, and women especially. And so as, as long as that there are women in their social media that, uh, you know, they are going to be kept in check because people will, now be in, um, empowered to speak out because they have this huge support net of women who support them online where they didn't have that before. They'd just be out of a career. Now they can go and tell their story. They can write a medium post and suddenly it goes viral and they're just as famous as the guy who, you know, abused them. Thank you so much. I just, again, say that I do think it's incredibly brave of all these women and people that have come out and, and that this is something that's out in the public and every small step forward and a couple steps back, but we're, we're something is happening anyway in how we talk about how women are treated. Yeah. And that's a really great way to say it. That's right. And I think that they're incredibly brave too. And I just feel really angry that so many people looked the other way while it was going on. It's really, they shouldn't have had to go through all that just to have a, an acting career, you know. Thank you so much again, Sasha, for taking your time. I know you're incredibly busy. Thank you. So nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much to Sasha Stone of AwardsDaily.com. And thanks again, Casper Collin, director of I Called Him Morgan. And thank you for listening to Pop Culture Confidential. Follow us on Twitter at PodPopCulture and send us your thoughts on the show to PopCultureConfidential.com. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, theme music by Carl Boy, and produced by René Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling Biro. Thank you so much for listening. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. 
Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.